Tonight's class for People's School is continuing discussing the book by Gus Hall called Karl Marx, Speaking for Our Times, and that was done in 1983. And it's a very good insight into the American Communist Party during the late 70s and early 80s. This book was dedicated to Karl Marx. How Karl Marx's work is the equivalent to today, can be used today. We're on page 50. It's called Dialectical Laws of Nature. Much is known and written about the laws of economic and social development, as well as scientific socialism. Much less is known and appreciated about how much Marx and Engels added to our understanding of the laws of nature to natural science. However, natural scientists are discovering that the more they probe the ways of nature, the more they learn about the dialectical laws that determine and explain all phenomena, nature, society, and consciousness. As Engels often noted, the process of discovering the laws of motion in nature is itself proof of one of the laws of dialectics. That is, there is an evolutionary process of probing and gathering scientific evidence. And then, there are periods of explosive revolutionary leap in scientific discoveries. In many ways, we are in one of those explosive periods in science. We call it the technological revolution, which is the result of great leaps in scientific discoveries. For example, scientists now have enough knowledge of the laws of living organisms, including genes, to proceed with the splitting of genes in order to create new forms and essence of matter. The new atom-smashing machines are now powerful enough to reveal new kinds of subatomic particles, including a particle with a single magnetic pole of attraction. This would seem to contradict the dialectical law of the unity of opposites. But on the other hand, it would tell the scientists to look for a particle with the opposite magnetic pole. Natural science may now be close to revealing possibly the most basic of all laws, the law of unity between the basic forces of nature, gravity, electromagnetism, and nuclear forces. These are ever deeper insights into the essence of nature, but the dialectical laws hold up why Marx still lives. It becomes clear why the ruling class rage against Marx has never subsided. They are angry, puzzled, and frustrated because they cannot comprehend why, after so many years and so many resources poured into the ideological war, Marxism still lives. Why, after decades of campaigns and crusades to destroy it, does Marxism grow in influence, prestige, and popularity? Why is Marxism timeless? Why does Marx dead over a hundred years still speaketh? Why are more than one half of the world's peoples either building socialism or moving in the direction of socialism, guided and inspired by the science of Marxism-Leninism? Or by members of political parties and movements who use this science. 
Why is Marxism-Leninism the main ideological current influencing the direction of human society? These are very pertinent questions. Certainly the answer is not because Marx called for the workers of the world to unite, although this slogan still expresses proletarian internationalism. The answer does not lie in Marx's credo, if one chooses to be an ox, one can, of course, turn one's back on the agonies of mankind and only look after one's own skin, although this is still a viable human concept. As we know, history's archives are chock full of social and economic theories, concepts, ideas, and philosophies, but they all gather dust, except for the great body of thought and action, Marxism, Leninism. To really answer the question as to why Marx is so vitally alive today, we must go back to the fundamental idea that Marxism-Leninism is a science that deals with the laws of all processes in life, social and economic processes, the laws of nature. The inner laws of capitalism that Karl Marx revealed so long ago have not basically changed today. In fact, as the contradictions in the capitalist system become sharper, as its parts wear out, as it becomes increasingly obsolete, many of the inner laws operate more openly, more directly. Therefore, they are much easier to see and understand. I don't understand Marxist credo if one chooses to be an ox. Basically, what he's saying is that if one has the choice to turn one's back on the miseries, the tragedies that mankind goes through, or he can decide to do something about it, or the person can choose just to take care of themselves and say, the hell with everybody else. That's a choice. That's what Marx is saying, that people have that choice. Although this is still a viable human concept, that's all. It's a choice between hey, it's me versus the world, the world doesn't exist, or it's me and the world, and we exist together. Perfect. Thank you, Comrade. All right, we're going to go back to Comrade. The Law of Surplus Value. Driven by a burning desire to do good, the struggle against injustice and exploitation, Marx, Engels, and Lenin focus their penetrating studies energies, and organizing skills on the human society on the stage of history, capitalism. The three volumes of Capital by Marx and Engels and the volumes by Lenin lay bare the inner inherent laws, the ugly essence of capitalism. Capitalism is a burning expose of anti-human, brutal social system based on exploitation of the working class. It is a steering indictment of the laws of the drive for maximum private corporate profit. The three volumes of capital make up a comprehensive handbook on how to fight the inhumanity and injustices of a system motivated solely by the greed of a small capitalist minority. It is Marx and Engels' great gift and legacy to the workers of the world. 
Because it is absolutely indispensable to the working class, the law of surplus value, or the law of corporate profits, is worth taking a closer look at. Because it exposes the source of corporate profit. Thousands of volumes have been written in an attempt to complicate, to distort, to cover up this law. When Marx proved that nothing is added to the value of product in the process of buying and selling, and this, therefore, cannot be the source of profit, the questions sharply emerged. What then is the source of corporate profit? The exploiting ruling class have never forgiven Marx for exposing forever their most guarded and sacred secret, the source of their ill-begotten wealth. Marx pointed out and scientifically proved that the profits of the capitalists can come only from the labor of the workers they hire to work in their plants and factories. The laws of surplus value operates very simply. The corporation pays the workers just enough so that they can continue living and working. The workers never get rich. Their savings are very small. But the workers produce much more than the value of the wages they get. This is the source of all profit. That is how the rich get richer and the workers get poorer. The workers produce all the wealth and the capitalists get wealthy. Let's stop there. This text seems to ring truer today than ever because basically what's happened is there are these negative interest rates going around in Europe and things, and pension funds, such as the teachers' funds, yeah, they're being forced to invest at negative interest rates which basically means if I'm going to give you $100 and in five years you give me 90 right. it's basically theft from working people. A lot of times in my economics classes or talking to people, business owners, etc., they justify surplus value as saying that it covers costs of other things like advertising, bringing products to market, etc. So how is that justification not valid? The next paragraph goes into that. Let us say it requires four hours of labor for the workers to produce what he needs to live and work. However, in most cases, the worker works an eight-hour day. Thus, the capitalist uses the worker's labor power for the full eight hours, which means he gets four hours clear profit from the labor of the worker. We can see how important this law is when we translate hours into dollars to measure surplus value or profit. If a worker produces $24 worth of goods in an hour, the value of an hour of labor is $24. If the worker is paid only eight per hour, the extra going to the boss is $16 and the rate of surplus value or profit is 200%. In terms of hours, if the worker is working nine hours, they are working three hours for themselves and six hours 
for the boss. Surplus value is the growth profit of the capitalist class. It is profit before dividing it up among the stockholders, the banks, landlords, and corporate brass. Understanding this key law of where corporate profits come from is critical because U.S. monopoly capitalists have surpassed all other exploiting classes in history in raising the rate of surplus value, in increasing brutality, the rate of exploitation of labor. It's using the word profit and surplus, but I wanted to mention for comrades, go and research profit of alienation, because I don't believe yeah. that this book specifically mentions it, because what we're speaking about is a direct correlation to what is known as profit of alienation, because there is a difference in paying a premium on a product. And that premium is not always from profit of alienation because before you're all the way transitioning to a higher social society, there has to be surplus to cover machinery malfunctions and so forth, but that money isn't held by one person. From my understanding, collectively owned by workers' councils or even the state. So I just wanted comrades to research profit of alienation by Marx. I want to add to that. It's very good. Thank you for bringing that up, comrades. The idea that there is no profit under socialism is incorrect. How does the government subsidize bread, transportation, education, medical services, housing, cheap housing? The money has to come from someplace. So it comes from the profit of the goods. But as comrades said, it does not go to a board of directors or shareholders as it does under capitalism. Instead, it goes back into the society. And whether it's Cuba, whether it was East Germany, the Soviet Union, even many parts of the Chinese economy, the reason why yeah. they're able to have low prices and they're able to have a safety net for the masses of people, even in China today, is because it goes back into the economy. Now, centralized planning does that. Any kind of deviation from centralized planning causes a problem, like the economic reforms in Cuba, like the economic reforms in Vietnam and in China. That takes money out of the coffers of the society because now it goes into the hands of individual corporations. just wanted to clarify that a little bit. Continue. Today, out of a working day of eight hours, the average worker worked two hours and nine minutes for himself and five hours and 51 minutes for the boss. Or to put it another way, for the rest of this year, the working class, those who are working that day, will work only for the profits of the corporations and to pay taxes. As Marx said, labor power is a commodity that is a source not only of value, but of more value than it has itself. Among themselves, the capitalists are very conscious of surplus value as the key to their profit. In fact, this is emphasized in the publicity material put out to lure industries to their areas. For example, New York State boasts 
New York's manufacturing workers produce $4.25 in value over every dollar they get in wages. In other words, four times more than the wages they are paid. The state which beats New York is Texas with $5 in value over every dollar of wages for a surplus value of 400%. And to uncover super exploitation, super profit from racism, an ad by Puerto Rico boasts, in Puerto Rico, the value over and above each dollar of production payroll averages $5.58, compared with the U.S. average of $3.72. Your payroll dollars are 50% more productive in Puerto Rico than the total U.S. average, end quote. The soaring rate of surplus value in the U.S. and in the country's U.S. imperialism is plundering is the basic cause of declining real wages. Declining living standards of the masses of U.S. workers, as well as workers laboring under the heel of U.S. imperialism. They are living proof of the correctness of Marxist statement of the irreconcilability of the interests of capital and labor and the law that profit rises in the same degree in which wages fall. It falls in the same degree in which wages rise. Any questions so far? The time that Gus Hall wrote that book was 83. And so within 30 years or so, the rate of exploitation has doubled. So that now, a boss, when Gus wrote that book, a worker would have to work four hours and the boss would have to pay a worker for four hours before he began to realize his profit. Now, a worker only has to work two hours, and the boss begins to realize his profit. So that after you work in a job two hours, the rest belongs to the boss. That's right. Thank you. That's a good point. Thank you, comrade. So, in other words, as capitalism marches on, Things are not getting better for the working class. They're getting worse. Thank you. As you saw this morning's New York Times, March 19, 1983, the great promise of high tech is going down the drain of surplus value, profit, i.e., high tech and high profits at a wage of 50 cents an hour in Taiwan, Malaysia, and South Korea. For every new 3,000 high-tech jobs, 50,000 other jobs are lost. All the bourgeois arguments that capital and labor are one big happy family, that what's good for GM is good for America, that labor and capital form a natural partnership based on class cooperation, are so much cover-up for the truth that Marx uncovered 130 years ago. In uncovering the law of surplus value, Marx also helped to reveal the law of class struggle between the capitalists and the workers, which gives the ultimate lie to all class collaboration concepts. The ultimate truth inherent in these laws 
made it possible for Marx and Engels to develop the theory of scientific socialism. They proved that far from being utopian or a fantasy, socialism is the natural outcome of the development of capitalist society. They showed that as capitalism develops, it digs its own grave. They brought to light the epic-making role of the working class and drew the logical conclusion that the road to the new society lies in overthrowing capitalism. Any questions? It's only tangential, but we were listening to Howard Zinn this morning, and he said something about economics that's so obvious, but I'd never thought of it before. Namely, that free trade is just something that allows the powerful to benefit and the not so powerful to be subjugated. In this, it says as capitalism marches on, it digs its own grave. The road to a new society lies in overthrowing capitalism. If it's digging its own grave, why do we have to overthrow it? That's a very good question. I've heard something like that my whole life. Marxists say it's inevitable that humankind goes through a period from the cave period to the slave period of Roman and Greece, from that to the feudal period of the Middle Ages where you have serfs, from that to the period of industrial revolution and capitalism. So Marx then goes on to say, because of the contradictions inside capitalism with production of goods, and they're not able to sell the goods, and et cetera, et cetera, then the next stage is socialism. And then the final stage, according to Marx, is, is communism. This is the scenario. So I've heard people say that if this is going to happen anyway, why should we waste our time making it happen? Would anybody like to answer that really good question? The whole capitalist system is built upon wage slavery and, of course, the oppression of different races. We all know that capitalism will soon fall because infinite growth is not quite possible. It's not an infinite amount of resources on this planet. Central planning and the dictators of the proletariat will save us from this, of course, but we must fight for that because even though capitalism fall is inevitable, we cannot just look back and say, well, the suffering is just a suffering. It's inevitable, so we must wait. We must always be ready to act and be vigilant in case the death throes of capitalism brings bloodshed, such as the rise of fascist militias, because fascism is capitalism in decay. Thank you, Cohen. Very good. Obviously, we mm -hmm. should fight for the working class and end the system as soon as possible. But my question is more centered on the contradictions inherent in capitalism leads to its own demise. We know that. However, why hasn't that demise happened yet? Because I don't think the contradictions have ever been more apparent than they are today. In addition to this manipulation of the numbers, which has been going on since 2008, what we're seeing now is there's something called negative interest rates, where banks pay you to take out a mortgage or a loan. And what's happening is pension funds, which is basically people who save money, common people, not the rich people, but the common people, and we save money. And there are these different funds and things. It's where you put your money to save. And so with these hedge funds, what do you want to call them, pension funds? They're being forced by the banks and the governments to invest at these negative rates where you're going to give $100 today and receive $90 in five years. That's how they okay. keep the system going. They just keep taking. But soon, you're right, it will come crashing down. 
I want to add to that. There's another aspect of this, and that is what happened in the Soviet Union. It's very important. Marx said, this is according to Marx, in my opinion, history proved them correct. As what he said, there's going to be ebbs like an ocean on a beach. There's going to be ebbs and there's going to be flows. The water is going to come in and the water is going to go out. And each time the water comes in, it's going to last longer than each time that it goes out. So the Paris Commune in France was the first attempt of the working class to take over. That lasted 70 days. The second attempt was the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, and that lasted over 70 years. So there's the ebbs and the flows. The next time, it's going to last longer until eventually it'll be forever, that particular economic system of socialism. I just wanted to add that. What's the need for a party and a working class movement if capitalism digging its own grave? And the response is, I think that phrase that socialism is inevitable, without dialectical materialism, we come to inaccurate conclusions. When I was in the Socialist Party USA, there's people that said there's no reason for a party, there's no reason to organize, we'll eventually have socialism. That's not true. What Marx means is through the contradictions of capitalism, working class people will inevitably come to the conclusion, if they're guided by science, to socialism. So socialism will happen as long as the contradictions of capitalism exist. And this idea that capitalism will inevitably transition to socialism doesn't happen on its own. Capitalism does not transition itself into socialism. You need working class people to do so. Right, and that's the difference between Lenin's contribution to Marxism, the theory of vanguardism, the vanguard party. That's correct, comrade, thank you. Okay, we're going to have to call it close for the class. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.